Well, welcome here this evening for um, for this evening's discussion, uh, which has been partly brought to you by uh, Melbourne School of Design, and obviously thanks to the M Pavilion team for their wonderful facilitation of this event, as indeed they have for weeks now. Um, so we are here to talk about the role of the government architect, and one thing we can be sure of before we start is that uh, it has many different iterations, both within Australia and around the world. Um, the, uh, the roles and responsibilities um, are quite varied and quite changing from almost week to week and election to election. So having just had an election here in Victoria, uh, with doubtless with some changes that will happen in the uh, coming months and years, um, it's a good time to reflect on that role. Um, we have with us this evening four esteemed guests, and I, I have some notes to, uh, to uh, detail their achievements, each one of them. I'll start with our international visitor, um, Ian Gilzian, uh, who studied at the Edinburgh University School of Architecture, has worked uh, on a number of architectural practices in Edinburgh, uh, London and Glasgow, including RMJM in Edinburgh and Elder and Cannon in Glasgow. Ian joined the Chief Architect's Office of the newly de uh, devolved Scottish Government in 1999 and became Chief Architect in 2006. He has responsibility for the development and implementation of the Scottish Government's policy on architecture and implementation of the Scottish Government's po oh, sorry, um, and cultural <laughs> initiatives. Uh, he advises Scottish ministers on architecture and the built environment and liaises with the architecture profession and other external bodies. He's been involved in architectural education for 25 years as a studio teacher, uh, external examiner, and uh, visiting professor. He's here in Australia for two months as a visiting academic at the Melbourne School of Design. Please make him welcome. <laughs> to my left, it's like a boxing match. Uh, to, my, <laughs> to my left, we have John Denton, director of the award-winning and highly acclaimed practice of Denton Corker Marshall, uh, which has offices in Melbourne, London, and Jakarta. The practice is noted for projects such as the Melbourne Museum, Anzac Hall at the Australian War Museum Memorial, the new Stonehenge Exhibition and Visitor Centre in the UK, and the, and the new Civil Justice Centre in Manchester, UK. He's a Life Fellow of the AIA, and in 1996 received the RAIA Gold Medal. From 2006 to 2008, he, uh, he was the advisor, he was a government architect of Victoria and advisor to Premier and Cabinet uh, for achieving better architecture and urban design outcomes for the government. He is an adjunct professor of architecture at the Faculty of Art and Design, Monash University, and is currently chair of the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. Please make him welcome. <laughs> we have Jill Garner, is the acting Victorian government architect and co-founder of Garner Davis Architects, a St Kilda-based architecture studio. In 1995, Garner Davis won the international design competition for the Wagga Wagga Civic Centre. Garner Davis continues to demonstrate their architectural credentials through considered, articulate, and timeless public buildings and private works. She, is also, uh, she also teaches at the RMIT and at Melbourne Universities in design, architecture, history, and, co and contemporary theory. She's a regular contributor to architectural events, awards, juries, publications, and journals, seminars. Uh, um, she, she's represented the architectural profession as an advocate for the importance of architectural design and innovation in numerous forms. Why she's here is that she's appointed, uh, she was appointed associate government uh, architect um, some years ago, and she's now, she's led many uh, Victorian design review panels. She's the acting government representative on design competitions and engagements. Uh, please make uh, Jill welcome. And finally, just so we're all in picture, Helen Lockheed is an architect and urban designer, an adjunct professor at Sydney University, 
and Deputy New South Wales Government Architect. The New South Wales Government Architect's Office provides architectural as well as urban design, landscape, heritage, engineering services to a wide range of government agencies in New South Wales, as well as providing strategic design advice, design review and specialist expertise to state and government. Helen's career has focused on the inception, planning and delivery of complex multidisciplinary projects ranging from a five-year city improvement project for the City of Sydney to major urban renewal and waterfront projects. Her projects have received numerous awards, including AIA and AILA um, Urban Design and Sustainability Awards. She was she has recently returned from the US, where she was the 2013-14 Lincoln Loeb Fellow at the Graduate School of Design in Harvard University and the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. Please make her welcome as well. So that was a bit of a mouthful. Um, but it's good that everyone knows who everyone is, since some people are out of state or indeed from uh, other parts of the world. Um, so obviously in Victoria, uh, as in other parts of Australia, we have in the past had public works departments, which had a very specific remit. And that was to do with the, uh, with the production of, in some form or other, uh, public buildings, be they libraries, swimming pools, or, or government buildings. Um, over recent years, that uh, role has morphed into a, a more general advocacy role, um, uh, more so in some states than others. But I think we can safely say that in, in many states, the government architect has taken on a, a more expansive role than has previously been the case. So part of our conversation this evening is to have a look at that difference between um, specifically procuring and delivering individual buildings um, and in a more broad sense, being an advocate and defender for, supporter of, and expert in good urban design outcomes. Um, I think I'd probably like to start off with Ian as our, uh, our visiting uh, guest. Um, and to, because uh, we, we will all have to some extent or other some knowledge about the government architect's role in one of our states here in Australia, but as chief architect in Scotland, could you just begin scoping out a little bit what, what you do and what your office is responsible for? Yeah, I mean, it's like you say, our, our office is uh, responsible for um, providing advice to the government ministers in Scotland. Um, we have an architecture policy. Uh, it's in its third incarnation. An architecture policy came out of um, it's one of the new initiatives that the devolved Scottish Parliament um, adopted in 1999. So, um, so we've got a wide programme. So, what we are doing is trying to implement that policy, provide advice, uh, as I say, to ministers, uh, and take forward a number of uh, uh, policies around urban design, uh, planning, placemaking, uh, lays with the other external bodies like the architecture profession. Um, and I think that what, what we, we've tried to do, is, particularly in the last few years, is, is turn a lot of the policy work into action. So we are trying to uh, work in a sort of hands-on way. So things like the Scottish Housing Expo, which I talked about in Melbourne um, a year and a half ago, is one of the, the outcomes of the policy. So uh, what we've tried to do is create a, um, like a kind of studio culture. So although we're civil servants and working within government, uh, our team is quite a small team, but we do try to work in a creative and flexible way and get uh, the opportunity uh, for my team to, you know, to get involved in uh, particularly the early stages of projects in terms of scoping them out. So, uh, so we do try to work uh, in a way that allows the policies that we develop to be uh, demonstrated in action. So, and it's come out of a kind of cultural strand as well. There's a big cultural strand to the work. So. Um, so promoting Scotland internationally, making links with other places, 
uh, and also uh, trying to get Scotland, for example, represented at the Venice Biennale has been another uh, aspect of what we've been doing. So, mixture of functions. And uh, for, really. for, for the Scottish politicians who you work with and are, are, are collaborating yep. with them, how would you say they view uh, the, the core function of, of your office? What's, what do they most want to get out of the Chief Architect's office? I think they want to get quite a lot out of us, given there was only 12 of us. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Fiona Hislop, who's um, Cabinet Secretary uh, with res responsibility for architects, she's also got culture, culture external affairs uh, in Europe within her portfolio. So um, after the last uh, election, the Scottish Government elections in 2011, um, she made um, architecture one of her top priorities and she's very keen to push it. That's why we've got another policy statement. So she sees it as a, a part of a, uh, our cultural heritage. But one of the things the SNP government has been quite keen to do is, is kind of move Scotland on. And she sees architecture and her approach to architecture as, as a kind of demonstration of that. So she's very supportive of you know contemporary architecture, which kind of respects the past, but really um, showcases Scotland as a, as a dynamic and you know, creative country. And, so and before the establishment of the office, how, if any, was there any formal representation between the architectural disciplines or urban design disciplines and, and government? What, was there any avenue or any...? I think it was mainly done through the profession before um, uh, the, you know, the architecture policy unit, um, architecture mm. place unit was set up. But before devolution, it was much harder for people to engage with politics in general in Scotland because you had... Uh, a Scottish office, you only had a few ministers, but now you've got um, MSPs um, who represent their local constituencies in Scotland. So, you know, Scotland's a, a relatively small country, so that contact between the profession, between government ministers in Scotland um, and communities is much more direct now. And I think that, so the policy in it, in it has got much more chance to be effective, I think. So things like community engagement, community empowerment, uh, you know, working with the public is, is really a big part of um, the policy as well. And another thing that we've done is support the Lighthouse, which is a yeah. um, key national uh, centre for architecture in Glasgow. So we've worked hand in hand with the Lighthouse to, you know, promote this kind of public debate and discussion, um, which we think is necessary mm -hmm. um, uh, around architecture. So that's been another key strand to supporting that kind of work as well. Yeah. John, I'd like to uh, pull you in at this point. And when you were appointed as a government architect in 2006, um, obviously prior to that, immediately prior to that, there hadn't been a, a, a Victorian uh, government architect's office. What would you describe as being, what did that mean for architects working in Victoria when there wasn't a government architect? What were the, what were the big issues, problems, or challenges that not having a government architect's office meant? Um, well, I think, I think to, a, to some degree, the government went out and got good architecture for, say, major cultural projects and things like that. So, you know, it, that, that sort of process would happen because um, they sort of knew it should. But across government, um, there was an awful lot of different ways things were happening and there was an awful lot of um, uh, impacts through the bureaucracy that, that inhibited good, better, better architectural outcomes. And so that's what, that's what the government architect was created to do, was to drive, drive better, 
better architectural and better architecture and design outcomes yeah. for the government because it was just missing in lots of places. And there was this, there, there, there was, and there still is. And you know, I know Jill fights it, if, you know, every day. The issues where the government isn't isn't responsive. I mean, there's there's de departments which. Um, I would suggest a sort of anti-architecture, you know, like, I mean, effectively, departments like the Department of Tre Treasury and Finance who view design as a risk, and if design's a risk, then you shed the risk and you, you, don't, you don't take that risk. So you push it out and, yeah. and don't take responsibility for it, whereas that sort of separates the architecture from the user and, mm. and is essentially a wrong, a wrong approach. So it was to try and mould those 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 sorts of things and see whether there were ways through the way design was procured to try and in, in get a better better result. Yeah, and, and how defined was that was the role at the beginning, or was it to some extent very very kind of general parameters, and then you defined it. I think in it was role, I or? think it was very general, and it really came it evolved because I think there was the patronage of uh, of Steve Brax thinking it was a good idea being convinced by others, you know, a range of other people, other architects, people that could get to him that it was a good idea, and then getting the support of the um, Secretary of the Department of Premier and Cabinet, who mm. took it on and, and took it under his wing and sort of gave it patronage. And that sort of really gave it, it gave it its start to actually do it. But then it was from there, it was sort of open slather. And so the f initially we just sort of tried to drive in and find out where the, where the issues were, what the problems were, how to how to engage, how to do things mm. in certain ways. And then when, when I finished up and Geoffrey London took over and Jill, things like that, they, they expanded in, in, into other other areas with a slightly different you know, slightly different nuance, but a good a good another good sort of way to pursue it and uh, and take it further. Yeah, it, it, even though the the formalising of the design review panel is relatively recent, I suspect that when you were in that role, there was a lot of de facto design review in it, in the position. Yeah, it did happen. We were we were encouraged. We we we, we on a sort of one to one basis, we we went we dealt with councils, we dealt with um, departments and various things like that. So it did happen. We provided we provided sort of advice to projects that were struggling. Right. Okay. Uh, and we also tried to interfere with PPPs and things like that, and, and um, because the process in government can be so, you know, difficult. I mean, with the children's hospital, the first thing the project manager was appointed, he listened to the minister who said they wanted something iconic. He interpreted that as meaning it had to be an international architect. So the first thing he did was decide that he had to go out to international architects to design the hospital, and. And the, when we first saw it, it was in the form of the, of the draft advertisement that was going to go out. And we, we objected to it and, 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 and said, no, you know, Australian architects and more importantly, Victorian architects can in fact do the job. Mm -hmm. um, if there's exp extra expertise you want from overseas, it could come by a specific con consultancies or expertise, but by and large, it doesn't have to be a, a uh, international architect. So we changed the just in, in changing the nuance of the of the ad that went into the paper, it changed the whole basis in which the, the, the project proceeded. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's that sort of getting in and f trying to interfere in the, pro in the processes that go on in <coughs> government as best you can, yeah. that really becomes a starting point for them. It must have been, uh, one thing you must have been very uh, aware of is obviously your practice has done a lot of big public buildings uh, in Victoria, 
you must have had a conversation where for a period of time you had to step away from from those kind of projects well I think we just we accepted that there was there, there was a point at which we could go to the secretary of the department and say um, we, we, we would like to be considered we would like to submit for this project in which case the deputy government architect took over and, okay. and he stood aside but that didn't really happen it wasn't really appropriate in most cases yeah 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 uh, Jill, so you're you're um, you're now acting uh, uh, government architect. Um, how how were since the election? Uh, I presume there are any smoke signals as to uh, <laughs> what the future of the. <laughs> um, well, I think uh, one. You know, John alluded to the issue of there being, um, I guess, champions for the whole idea of a government architect. And I think every time the government shifts, the um, the players shift. Yeah. And in a way what's happened is that we've now got a whole new raft of players who are in um, significant positions. So yes, we're, we're in a process really of introducing ourselves to them, introducing what we do to them, introducing the, the type of value that um, John was talking about to them. And um, you know, it, it's, it's probably the second time I've had to go through that process in the time I've been in the role because um, government shifts a bit. And uh, it, it sort of seems a bit arduous, but I think it, it or you just need a few champions. Yeah. And I think government is thoroughly aware of the role that they play as, uh, as perhaps a body that builds public buildings or civic buildings so it has a very responsible role in actually building part of our built environment and being responsible for our built environment and so it's actually just the message of you know uh, perhaps changing a few words changing mm -hmm. the principles that might be in a brief changing the procurement method perhaps opening um, the process to design review processes, making sure that the principles of what might be a good design are embedded in every project. That means that the, the, the government can take some, some pride in actually doing the best it possibly can within the realm of that particular public project. Mm. So it, it all makes perfect sense, but yeah. it's a matter of actually um, Get you know capturing the imagination of those that actually um, are perhaps in the position of saying, yes, we'll have you around the table to look at the brief or to assess the site or to discuss it and to, or to watch it as it's progressing. For as long as they are themselves around the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so right. the, yeah. the 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 office uh, um, it, it morphed somewhat uh, about two thirds way through Jeffrey's time when it moved out of Premier and Cabinet to the what Department of Transport Planning and Local Infrastructure. Could you talk us through a little bit the impact or implications that had for the... Yeah, what, what, um, what we had when we were in the Department of Premier and Cabinet, which is where <coughs> we were when John was um, in the role, was a very clear, direct reporting line to the Premier um, via, via the um, Department of Premier and Cabinet and via the Secretary of that department. And what it meant was that the, um, I, I, I guess, we weren't constrained by this this idea that we were perhaps um, constrained by planning requirements, planning um, statutory issues, things like that. And and I think it was a very clear set of um, perhaps perhaps um, of we were quite seen as quite individual and and quite 
um, independent and our voice or John's voice um, in that role was able to be quite separate to issues, legislative issues or statutory issues. Um, and it could focus on a really good design outcome. I think um, when, when the government changed, um, when the Premier changed actually, the government didn't change. So our first change was when the Premier changed and, um, and we were slipped into the, the new department, as, as you say, of, of transport planning and local infrastructure, which is not a bad fit in the sense that we do a lot of work in transport. We're, we've got a voice around the table with a lot of the work that's taking place with road, rail, etc. Um, um, but And we were, we were packaged, I guess you could say, into the planning group. And I guess this is the one, one thing that has provided perhaps a slightly, the, slightly the wrong conception of where we sit because we, we feel a little constrained by the fact that mo a lot of the work that we do is completely outside the constraints of planning. You know, the hospitals, the education projects, the civic projects, the, the arts projects um, don't actually have planning implications. So quite a lot of the, the work we do is really whole of government work that exists outside the realm of the statutory planning um, requirement. Mm. So much as we, we also are in that space, um, you know, and we, we have a design review role within the central city, within Fishman's Bend, within Cremorne, um, and we are actually increasing our engagement with local government that, um, that existed previously as well. And we have a design review panel, which is a, a series of a series of independent panelists. It's actually allowed us to really reach far and beyond what we were able to when we were just a, a small organisation. So there, those there mm -hmm. there are implications, planning implications would in those. Projects. Would you say that in the move out of Premier and Cabinet that the the capacity for the office to somehow feel like it had a role with lots of different departments? was diminished somewhat? Uh, look, no, because actually I, I think those relationships are still there. It's probably the perception of where we sit rather than the reality. We're still doing the work with justice. We're doing a lot of work with education, a lot of work with transport, but it's not actually where we... We're not actually sitting there. Right. And we report through the Deputy <coughs> Secretary of Planning. So it's just a slightly um, yeah. difficult... Okay. Circumstance. And as, as the first question, you're basically steady. She goes we've and see what happens. Kind of. We've actually, I had to write this down. We, we've been moved <laughs> okay. into a new department which is called Environment, Land, Water and Planning, um, of which... Terrible acronym. <laughs> we can't work out what the acronym is yet. Um, so there's a lot of work in the environment, land and water side of things. And, and then there's planning and then we sit reporting through planning as well. So... Um, that's it's we're settling into it it's all being um, negotiated at the moment and once again as I said we've got a lot of people to introduce ourselves to and to kind of um, yeah. ra raise the status of and the understanding of what contribution we can make within the within the, the realm of projects that government delivers I'm sure most of the people in this room are crossing their fingers and seeing what happens <laughs> next <laughs> yeah. um, Helen um, the, the, the New South Wales uh, Government Architects Office is quite different, isn't it, in, in, res, in the respect that uh, you're actually responsible um, for 
delivering projects, designing and delivering projects. I, I think I saw on the website, uh, that, is it true that is it about 170 staff, is it? Or? Uh, no, it's about, one, about 100 now. 100, right, yeah. okay. Still yeah. a formidable uh, yeah, it's, group it's of people large. and a reasonably chunk of revenue that, that, that seems to come through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, that's, do, do, do you also have the, the advocacy role as well? Do you get pulled into that, what, what, what um, Jill's saying in terms of advising lots of different departments? And Our role is really very different. And um, probably most people would know it's probably it's the oldest government architect's office in Australia, and I think it'll be 200 years next year. So the fact that it's this continuous office that's been around since the early days of the colony is kind of interesting in itself. So, so many um, extraordinary public buildings in New South Wales have been developed in this office. So it's been a training ground for so many architects that have gone on and influenced the shape of Australian architecture that I think it's, has a, it's kind of very influential in very different ways and not because of advocacy but often because we actually construct projects. We, um, I think we do a lot of research by design. We do um, advocacy through design. So for example we've been doing um, indigenous childcare centres and so it's actually trying to influence how childcare is done in indigenous communities. We've worked with teacher housing to actually look at flexible housing models for teachers in remote communities. Um, we've developed uh, the Sydney Green Grid as part of the new metro strategy which is looking at how you actually knit together the whole green infrastructure around Sydney to actually uh, enable higher densities. So you're sort of saying look with all this additional amenity we can have higher densities and more urban living. So it's kind of trying to do through projects what these guys are doing through policy mm -hmm. and through advocacy. And it's a very different strategy, mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. essentially that's the kind of approach that we've had to take. Notwithstanding that we still do design review, we do strategic government projects um, and large-scale complex projects at the inception stage, like um, conceptualising a project, which then will go out to private practice or you know different methods of procurement. So front end. And so is the office uh, expected in a sense to kind of run it, run itself out of profit or is it yeah. a... Yeah? Yeah. Okay. I've, we have to generate like $25 million a year to keep everyone right. busy. Okay. That's a lot of work. And, and how does, I mean given that it is essentially it's a government office and the government will be procuring um, lots and lots of different buildings and design talent for, that, for those buildings. How, does, how are the decisions made as to, to allocate which projects are delivered through the government architect's office or say for instance at open tender? How, how does that we process don't, work? We don't get allocated projects, okay. we win projects. So we have to compete just like everybody else does and um, it's right. on a competitive approach. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, does that ever cause, I mean, I, you know, it's probably a tense question, but does it ever cause tension between, between other practitioners who are you know, trying to win the same job, and there might be a yeah. perception of like the big government architects office coming into the fray, or is, is that a? Um, no. So we also have to demonstrate competitive neutrality. So we do have to have the same modus operandi to demonstrate that we don't have any competitive advantage over the private sector. But we don't tend. We tend to do work which often is. We might do work upfront which is confidential. So before it actually goes out or um, where we have specialist expertise, which may be complex in terms of procurement or um, not straightforward. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, you're not 
necessarily competing in level, you're not necessarily competing on every project with um, private architects, if yeah. you know what I mean. Right, okay. We actually had this sort of niche where no one would want to touch this in a million years. <laughs> oh, we're do that. what about the government architect's office? You know, like, so that's when I'm talking about complex. It's not necessarily just complex in terms of the, the problem of the architectural problem. It may be problematic politically or operationally or, or yeah. on a number of other dimensions. Yeah, yeah. I get the impression, I, I, don't, know, I don't know how how true this is, but I get the impression that the New South Wales Government Architect's Office is a, a very stable kind of beast in a way. When, I, when you look at Queensland and after Campbell Newman came on board, there's lots of jitters there, and South Australia, Ben's just left there, and no one's quite sure how that's going to develop. Um, you know, different states have had different levels of uh, stability, you might say. Whereas, I don't know, I've, I have this impression that the New South Wales Government Architect is a fairly stable kind of entity. Well, you said 200 years. Would that, would that be accurate? Is it? Is it uh, no, not, no, not necessarily. I don't think, um, I think it does have a tradition, which I, I think kind of gives you something to hold on to. But uh, I think we would really like to see the role of the government architect much more strategic and much more of an advocacy role, much more leading policy, the same way the other states have actually cast the, right. the direction. Um, but we do have to, but because we're self-funded, we do have to have balance that between funding and um, being able to bankroll these so sort of activities. So basically you're saying effectively that, that taking on projects and delivering the projects to, to drives the revenue that allows you then to become advocates or at least put that forward. It does. It does help you to do that. I mean, but we do. We also do design review. We do design competitions. We run design charrettes. So we're doing different kinds of um, advocacy the same way these guys are as well. But yeah. but mainly it's it's, well... Mm. It's not 50-50, but it's probably more projects, but it's, it's increasing. The, the, the kind of advocacy and um, spreading the word, educating. Um, you know, we also do secondments into a other agencies, so we put architects in almost as plants to kind of spread the design word, you know, into transport and justice, Sydney Opera House. I mean, all sorts of institutions to try and get them to think about their kind of agenda yeah, yeah. differently. So, um, Ian, if I come back to you, the, the issue of um, sort of self-funding or how one is funded, um, I noticed lo looking at uh, at your website there was there was um, a talk around the ambition of the uh, of the office, and part of that was to be of kind of economic contribution to Scotland. And yeah. I even <coughs> saw the dreaded words "value for money" in there somewhere. <laughs> and I was wondering whether you could say a little bit about how, uh, by what metrics, about what means the office. Um, demonstrates back to government the commercial or economic value of what you do. Yeah, I mean we've done some research in that. There's also research, uh, you know, done by CABE in England that, that demonstrates the value um, of design, and um, you know we've tried to build that into the the latest version of the policy. And uh, you know procurement is also a big issue um, about you know trying to build that into the process. So. I think the way we've dealt with it is to say, you know, this is really about investment. You know, what, how do you get good investment? How long term, thinking about long term, thinking about sustainability. So it's really about arguing the, the benefits of, uh, you know, good design over a, a longer period and looking at that from a, a sustainable point of view and using the evidence that shows that design doesn't necessarily cost more, that design is a very small uh, component of the whole life cost of a building. It's probably, you know, 
under um, you know, 5% of the whole life cost. So when you look at that, what we're arguing is that that's the most important 5% of your investment because that dictates how successful the project's going to be in the long run. So um, those are the sort of arguments we've been making, is thinking not so much about the procurement process per se, but thinking about commissioners getting their investment thinking right and thinking about the long term and thinking about the wider impact and benefits that any you know, public sector investment has. Yeah, of course with the whole of life uh, uh, analysis you do yeah. have to then map that on the short three or four years of a government and how that how that uh, balances out. Yep. Um, tell me, I know when I spoke to, spoke to Paul Finch a couple of years ago, Cape was just going through that a process of having to um, com commercialize to some yep. extent the, the uh, design, design review panel. Do yep. you also, in, to the extent that you have those panels, do you get funded from your clients? Uh, well, we don't, what we do is we fund another body like CABE. There's a, a body called Architecture and Design Scotland, um, which is the equivalent to CABE, although CABE has shrunk back quite a bit um, since the Conservative uh, uh, Lib Dem coalition came in. Um, so we provide about uh, one and a half million pounds of funding to Architecture and Design Scotland. And they run a number of different programmes, including uh, design review. So the way we look at it is that it kind of could be a bit controversial if we get involved in making design judgments. So we devolve that to the other uh, to Architecture and Design Scotland. They've actually changed the way they do it. They've tried to change it from being like the kind of more like a crit system to more like a, a workshop system. So they're, they're calling it de design forum now. So they're trying to get in a much earlier stage in projects and work with. Uh, you know the, the the people are t bringing the projects forward, so it's not at the leaving it too late in the process where it's actually quite difficult to make changes or costly to make changes. Yeah, yeah, Jill, I, I gather that um, kind of late in the last Parliament's life, um, uh, that the planning minister was talking about imp in introducing the costing of the design review panel. Is that gone ahead? Is it now changed in how it's structured? Uh, no, no? We, we've we've basically been told that. Um, that, that at the moment things will continue the way they were with the previous government, which means that our design review panel is unfunded. Okay. Um, but in, in Plan Melbourne um, is written that uh, there's great support for it and we're required to run it, but we actually have lost our funding for it. So it's a matter... We, so basically we need to make it a... Um, it, it needs to cover its costs. So it needs to earn, earn you know, pay its way. So we've been um, engaged in a, a very um, lengthy process over the past six months or so of working out how we can make it pay its way. And um, it's been a bit of a distraction, I have to say, because mm. we've got three members of our team dedicated to running the, the design review program. And it's... Um, it, it's the, the breadth of what it can cover is so significant it's a quite a minimal cost to cover it, but to actually collect that from every single person who is actually submitting for design review is quite a different um, structure, if you like, than yeah. it being a funded model. And, and there is some, you know, I guess we, we're very keen for it to expand into the regions. The councils that have got money are happy to pay mm. for it. Those that um, regional councils find it difficult to to find the money to fund for design review. So, um, yeah, we're, we're trying to be quite creative about 
about how it, it might work and I guess the fact we're across some of the big projects in Melbourne, like the transport projects, um, some of the road projects, etc., um, the idea is that we may get funds that, you know, can be used for, uh, you know, Rob Peter to pay Paul, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As a general question, I guess, for you all, uh, um, how do you feel currently the public interacts with design and, and the, the, the role of government architecture, the role of some form of government to advise on matters of the built environment. Do you, do you think this broadly support or, or suspicion or encouragement or how do you think the yeah. public interacts with? Uh, look, I've, I've been contemplating um, the, the issue of what makes any role valuable to, to the public and so there's the role within government of a public service generally, so a whole group of individuals I guess. And then there's the other times where there's an, an individual who might represent a particular issue mm. um, and they become a voice for that particular issue. And in a way, that's what the government's role, the government architect's role is. It's a, an individual voice leading a very small team, in our case, um, of, of a, an issue that is, I suppose, if you look at it as a critical human issue, is it important, is it not? I, I think it's ish interesting that issues of, I've been thinking about this in terms of spokesmen for issues of safety, for issues of um, promotion of community, for the idea of health um, and well-being. Uh, they're very understandable things. And I guess I've been wondering, because really I guess those that work in the built environment feel that a really brilliantly designed built environment contributes to all those things. It contributes to people feeling safe, people loving where they live, people occupying the streets, people exercising. It can encourage you to exercise. So to have an advocate for the built environment, it, it is a, an exercise in educating the community the, of the benefits that a good, a well-designed environment can could, bring. Could I ask you, John, when you took on the role, um, did you see that a, a part of the government architect's government office was to communicate broadly to the public and to get stories out through the media related to architecture, or, or not so much? Um, not so much. Less, less so to the public at large. More assuming that, that they wanted it, good design. Yeah. <coughs> um, no, it was. I mean, for me, it was more trying to analyse what was the, what was the sort of what were the things that government did that weren't getting the right results and how then how you change them. Right. Um, okay. Like procurement. I mean, procurement is a fundamentally important one that really gets in the way of an awful lot of good design. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, was, I suppose that's what taxed me more. I mean, because there were things like CAVE, there were a lot of CAVE publications, there was a lot of that sort of thing that, 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 that is around. And, and, and yes, it, it, it's good to... to um, support it and promote it but um, mm. there's, this, there's an intangibleness about great architecture yeah. which is not which is not the sort of um, programmatic part of good, de of good design which you can identify and whether it be sustainability or whatever they're, they're all things that are definable and they're important to define and have done but I suppose what really taxed me was, was how do you make sure that you get really great architects doing the work so that you get that thing that's got that something more, yeah. In terms of what it makes, I guess, I guess I have in mind that city. Kind of 
have that, have that um, golden triangle in mind of you know the, the degree to which you can talk to the public and the degree the public like it, then the politicians have to be voted in by the public, and therefore there's a kind of a relationship there that uh, that some have. Uh, it's a pretty slow process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I know that while, while he was governor, Ben Hewitt's big part of his role yeah. was to try was very much about public engagement and putting everything on the high street if possible. Tell me, in, in Scotland, uh, what what do you think the do you have a sense of the relationship between a, a broader public and uh, and the chief architect? Well, we, we do we do think that the, the question of public engagement is is really important, and it's kind of underpinned a lot of the thinking, the policy, right from the outset. And that's one of the reasons why, um, when we first set up the policy, um, we had a budget of about three hundred thousand pounds to take it forward, uh, and we, we we basically just put all that money over to the lighthouse so that they could run public-facing programmes, exhibitions, and so on, and get, really get a debate. It would support the lives. also got a, an idea of a debate going around Scottish architecture and various issues connected with that. So the first big exhibition we did was around housing, and that kind of debate around housing in Scotland, you know, is ongoing. And uh, I think, so that there's different way, at different levels that this will work at. One is the you know, general engagement in the media and so on, and, programmes and television and coverage of architecture um, and I think that has uh, improved and increased over the last um, few years in Scotland but I think it's also because architecture itself has become more of a political issue so the building of the Scottish Parliament itself was a massive public issue, it was a massive debate about it, about the cost and so on so that, that's actually turned around, it's a very positive story because people have well, John will know about the Scottish Parliament uh, competition anyway, but you know the building itself actually brought architecture, politics, and the public all together. So I think there is different audiences that for the policy. There's a political audience, there's a professional audience. But I think the public audience is really important. And uh, one of the things that's happening over the next couple of years is that the Scottish Government's designated, they've had these themed years to promote Scotland, particularly for tourism. Um, so we've had a year of uh, cult, uh, Creative Scotland, a year of Natural Scotland, but 2016 is going to be a year of architecture and design uh, and innovation. So that will have to be a year where there's a big public focus on architecture uh, and it will be set up in such a way it's, uh, to encourage people to come and visit Scotland. It's already got a you know, good uh, you know, awareness of its built heritage internationally. We want to try and promote the contemporary uh, scene around architecture as well in 2016 and get communities around the country uh, engaged in the built environment. So we've got various ideas about how we might do that yeah. in 2016. Yeah. So you, you mentioned housing in there, and I'm, I'm interested, Helen, in, in, in the New South Wales context. Uh, uh, is, that, is, is the question of housing something that the, the office is involved in in discussions around, like particularly, I suppose, affordability and housing and stuff like that. Has have you taken on board uh, housing projects or? We don't do as much housing as um, we could. However, we have been most recently involved in the new apartment design guide, which is okay, the yeah. follow-up to the SEP 65, SEP 65 um, residential flat design code. Um, and so we're doing a re peer review. And I, I was thinking about what you're saying about how you engage with the public but i think that a lot of our engagement is really as the honest broker is you know pr coming in and, and uh, assisting local government or assisting agencies or in this case with the doing the peer review the independent peer review like planning saying could you review this and pr 
because we've had so much feedback and input, how do we assess what goes in and what goes out? So you, you, you become kind of this independent voice, which is actually sort of straight, on the straight and narrow. And I think that is a very valuable thing that people do value, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that you're there to actually put design front and center and make sure we get the best outcome possible and in the p best public interest. Yeah. Yeah. Ian, you know, I was just going to say that another thing we've done, and I think Helen mentioned this earlier, is that we've, we've started a program of design charrettes. So we're yeah, so providing we yeah. funding to allow um, local communities to engage in a, you know, an intensive design process with professionals and stakeholders. And it's quite a, um, a big program of that now. We've, we've probably funded over 30 of those projects around Scotland, and it's mainly in small, smaller communities that are you know, benefiting from those um, charrettes, and it's feeding into the, the planning process. So I think that's quite a, a good way of actually getting out of the very linear confrontational planning process to something that allows people to come together and allow their ideas to feed into the, you know, the design process. So, yeah. So uh, yeah, we. I mean, we have really been doing that too. Most recently in um, Liverpool and in Bondi, where you've got major projects, and everyone's at each other's throats. And so you just come in, and you actually get a lot of different architects coming in, doing a range of schemes, having a very public discussion, and then put forward design principles, which can therefore take the project forward through the procurement process. So okay. Yeah, a much more engaged process than previously. So, you, so you mentioned uh, Sexy Sixty Five and its and its latest iteration. For those in the audience, that obviously that's a uh, uh, planning. <coughs> guidelines around uh, things like uh, not having inboard uh, bedrooms with no windows and, and such. Um, interestingly enough, that last year there was a, a bit of a flurry in the newspapers uh, around this issue here in Victoria. I wonder, uh, Jill, would you like to comment on, on how that was, how the public seemed to respond, or at least the journalists responded to Victoria having something of the equivalent? Um, yeah, well, I guess our, our interest in, um, in looking at the idea of apartment standards was sparked really through our liaison with um, with with New South Wales, and um, and and through us seeing quite a lot of uh, apartments starting to happen in Melbourne because we're uh, many years really behind what's been happening in New South Wales, and starting to get a little concerned about the quality of some of the apartments we were seeing and just feeling they they perhaps weren't meeting um, some of the sort of basic amenity standards that were represented actually in, in SEP 65 and so we just did a little bit of work to drill down into why and what the difference was and we found that, um, that, that, that there, are, there are parts of our building code, parts of our planning code that um, allow certain outcomes that wouldn't actually be allowed in New South Wales and so We've done some work on trying to make some recommendations that this be addressed. And um, basically that's in still in very draft format. Uh -huh. um, and we're working with the Department of Planning to see where it could be, where, where certain parts of it could be embedded within the planning scheme, etc. There's other parts of it which might be Building Code of Australia issues. So we need to look at that as well. Um, so yes, it's really uh, the idea behind it is to perhaps uh, just 
lift the amenity quality of, of mm. quite a lot of what we've seen. But just that, you know, we've got a very significant change in the idea of living in apartments here in Victoria. Mm -hmm. And it's it's actually not just central Melbourne either. It's, it's really expanding into even some of the um, more outer suburbs mm. as well. And it's something we're not... Our planners actually... Um, are not used to dealing with it in in certain um, constituencies. Uh, are you are you hopeful that um, that indeed something that's quite tangible could come out of that uh, process? Look, yes, yes, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> um, we we actually have we we've been working on. We do a one of the things that we have been doing over the past sort of um, since the government architect's been in existence. We've produced what are called um, good design publications, and we've done several on various um, particular subjects. Um, one of them uh, is on education, one is on transport, working in those particular realms. Um, we are in, in busy working on one at the moment, which is about good design and apartments. And I guess what it will do is it will actually put, put on, on um, you know, it'll actually advertise, I suppose, our interest in the idea of lifting amenity, etc., and it will actually table the type of work we've been doing in the area, and it will preempt some of the things and make some recommendations um, as to how it might go forward as a statutory issue. Yeah. But clearly, that's not in our court to kind of you know address the statutory side of things, but um, but clearly working closely with with the Department of Planning. We can do our best mm. there. So just about all states uh, and territories in Australia, just about have a, a, a government architect or some form of that. Do you, do you do you work together? Do you collaborate? In, in what yeah. way? In what way does that does that? We um, we set up a, a network. A, a probably about four four years ago, five years ago. I understand. Might be longer. Yeah. Might be longer. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, yeah. you can answer that better than me. John. Did you initiate it? No. No. Well, I think as soon as the, the Victorian government architect got going, and the, the, there was contact and Ghana got set up yeah so it's, it's confusing for me <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes yeah, yeah. It, has, it functions basically as a network of communication as network, to what yeah, you're doing. Yeah. yeah yeah so it, I think it's grown over time but it's it, it, it uh, does it have a capacity as a body to um, engage with federal politics with, with we, we draft, um, if there is an issue of federal interest, we, we have a me an annual meeting that we all get together, we table what we're doing, and we've done several draft letters to, um, on particular issues where we feel that a, a shared national voice um, about, for example, the urban design protocol, we've mm -hmm. kind of accepted as a, um, as a piece of work that that's a very good document, and I guess we're we've endorsed the document um, as a national body. Yeah. Okay. So, Ian, you mentioned at the beginning that um, that prior to the chief architect's office, um, it was really uh, through the profession itself that um, that there was communication to decision makers. Um, how have you found the relationship over the years um, between the profession and the chief architect's office? Has it been all good? Any difficult tensions at the I think um, it's been reasonably positive. Um, what we also do, I think there's another aspect of public engagement, is we work with the profession in Scotland to sponsor the, um, the Doolin Award, which is the major architecture prize in Scotland, um, the equivalent of the Stirling Prize. So 
Um, so that's given us something you know, very positive to work with and that I think has grown uh, in sort of stature over the last uh, 10 years and it's and that's where you can kind of track um, at least at the top end the kind of some improvement in quality and architecture in Scotland so we do that um, I mean there has been um, you know it's been said before one of the big issues for the profession is uh, procurement and particularly uh, EU procurement and the kind of um, various uh, adverts that have to be put out um, to comply with the EU um, requirements. So um, so that's been a, a kind of uh, an issue for uh, the profession, but that's with government, government generally, I think. And what we've been able to do, I think, is work with the profession to try and get that you know, on the agenda. Uh, we've had a review of construction procurement over the last um, 18 months. There's various recommendations come forward in that and the important one is that, um, that out of that is a recommendation that procurement should be design-led. That's really important and the government has adopted those recommendations so now we are looking at ways in which that will take effect. What does it mean to have a design-led procurement uh, system? So, um, so and also in 2016 as I talked about before the, the profession are going to be running a, a big major festival of architecture um, so generally, the, the relationship is um, is positive, and um, you know I think there was in the early days of the lighthouse, I think there was some tension between RIS, who, who had previously you know run exhibitions and so on, and we were putting all this money into this new newcomer on the block. Um, but I think generally it's been uh, you know reasonably positive, and I think it's a you know it's a it's actually quite useful to have uh, you know that liaison with the profession it helps us understand you know what, what are the kind of key kind of challenges for practices out there working day to day as you say that uh, that there's this move towards um, procurement being design led yeah I have to say that you know quite often the conversations that we have with people in the room um, would, would be the opposite and, and then the amount yeah. of times when you have to defend yeah. some not just leading but some role of design within that process. How, how can you explain that, uh, as John said, you know, the treasury guys will be saying, We're the, you know, it's too much risk here. How can you explain? I'm just wondering if you're in a very, um, <laughs> you know, a period of halcyon days. It yeah, just yeah. sounds... The glory yeah, golden yeah. days. Glo golden days, yeah. Well, we'll see what, hap but we'll see what happens with it. But the, the point is, is that, that that report has been fully adopted by the Scottish Government. Every recommendation that was in that report has been... Uh, agreed. The question is um, how we do that, and uh, uh, there is another body in Scotland called the Scottish Futures Trust, which helps to kind of raise funding for public projects, and they have been quite, um, uh, you know, focused on the, the money side of the, the equation. And because of the procurement review, we've been able to get into very positive dialogue about, again, going back to what we were saying earlier about design is actually an investment; it's not a cost. Mm -hmm. And okay. so that getting that message across, and the procurement review has been helpful in terms of that. So that's trying to, you know, get that message out to pub other public authorities, local authorities who, um, you know, overcomplicate the, the procurement process. So a lot of it is about trying to simplify it and trying to get make opportunities for, you know, the, the kind of architects who are not so used to going through the PQQs and all of this, uh, giving them a chance to, to, you know, pick up some public commissions. Mm -hmm. um, another thing we've done is to try and create opportunities for younger practices, so smaller projects which don't have to go through the whole um, OG process. We've tried to 
create a system of uh, architectural competition uh, on various initiatives. Um, and that's been quite successful as well in terms of raising the profile of you know, some of the younger practices. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've done a similar thing in New South Wales, um, developed a pre-qualified scheme. So does, and so it opens the door to um, a whole raft of much smaller practices to be on the, the list for public projects. Mm -hmm. And it comes through the Government Architects Office. So um, yeah, that's been quite a... So projects from, from public clients come into the office and then you run a process of pre-selecting? Well, we've actually already pre-qualified them, so they're already on a list. So okay. we, we've actually oh, okay. kind of vetted them all, and we've just said, okay, there's all these a whole raft of new practices who we believe actually are fit to do a whole range of public projects, which they would not have been able to qualify for through the onerous public mm. works mm. portal that... You know, I mean, yeah. having been on the other side of it myself for a number of years, it's just mind-numbing. Yeah. So, um, so this is a really huge step forward. Yeah. Jill, do you think that, um, you know, as John said, one of the first um, jobs really was to, to address procurement and try and improve um, the role of design within procurement. Uh, do you feel, are we heading, which direction are we heading, in a good direction, a bad direction, and what can the OVGA do? in relation to that now? Well, we, we did last year publish a document um, called Government as Good Client, which was a, well, which is um, a, a discussion of dif the different procurement methods. Basically what we found, we, um, the Victorian government, each department that is responsible or as a client, I guess, has their own procurement methods and they, swear by them and they have been doing them for a long time so we started the whole idea of procurement I think it was a document that um, John probably started working on and and we we started at thinking we could propose um, a one one method of procurement that might serve government really well and we realized really quickly that that just wouldn't work and um, and so we we ended up talking very closely with each department that builds and finding out how their individual preferred method um, might work. And so the document actually <coughs> outlines any number of types of contract and the focus of the document is if you are using a DNC contract, a PPP, a, you know, an alliance, how can you embed the best possible outcome as far as design goes in that process? So it accepts all the different types of procurement methods, but says, okay, within that, within the, the boundaries of that particular method, how do we procure good design? And, and I guess it goes back to what Ian was saying about being there most of the time very, very early and having um, even a, a vision which is allied, aligned to a design vision in the brief at day mm. one. And, and actually um, just making sure that when it's out in, out in the public that it's clear that it's a design-focused assessment process as well. So if you can somehow clarify the idea that design is important mm. in, in, in any project that government is actually responsible for, then slowly the culture of that changes. It's a, you've still got to have people who believe in it to allow it to happen. But I guess what we've pinned down is a methodology 
and that if if a department follows that and and does get the right words in the brief, the right analysis of the project in its process, then theoretically the outcome will be better than it would have been. Mm. Um, we're about an hour in so far, um, which is pretty close to the end. And even though uh, Don hasn't said this is possible, but I'm going to suggest it anyway. Uh, if there's any questions from the floor, I think now would be a good time to take a couple of questions if we have any. Oh, we have a roving microphone too. So don't be shy. An unroving microphone. <laughs> or just you can just talk loudly. Yes? Uh, a question for the assembled government architects. Um, one of the, I, I must say, I, John, I've never heard that story before about, because I've always known when you were government architect, your firm simply didn't get involved in any government projects. And I thought that was, uh, you know, a great act of leadership, actually, exemplary. Uh, and it seems to me that when a practitioner who has a, you know, an ownership interest in a firm becomes a government architect. That pretty well has to be the way you do it. I can't see how you could do it any other way. So accepting that and accepting, of course, that there are other, other kinds of people other than practitioner owners who can be government architects, um, I'm a bit concerned about where are all the next government architects going to come from because <laughs> it's a pretty uh, difficult thing to do to do what you did um, there are, you know, there are academics, there are, I guess, senior architects who are within companies but who aren't owners who mm -hmm. could step out of those companies to do the job. Mm -hmm. um, what, are the, uh, what do the panel think about the sustainability of the role, given that you need really good people in that role to be effective? And that those good people will very often have to step away from otherwise good work that they're doing. That's a good question. Look, I, I think that um, for someone like myself, working in the public interest is like the m main motivation. Um, often when you work in private practice, you're actually really working to a client, to a brief, to a commerciality, which is the imperative. And when you work in um, government, you have the opportunity to influence way beyond any specific project. So for a practicing office, I think it's extremely attractive and we attract really great people because they have that larger, bigger um, picture. And so I, I don't think there is any problem with people coming in and out and traversing from public to private sector because I think you're going to get a much richer and more informed um, government architects culture. Um, but I also think that people um, at my stage of the career, so many have moving into public office because they want to influence outcomes in, in different ways that they can in private practice. So I think it's not an issue. I just think you do have to have clear delineation between your practice and um, the public realm, but I think that they both are like the same way academia and practice actually help inform your teaching informs practice, I think also working on the other side of the table informs how you are um, when you go back into practice as well. Ian, how's your pipeline? <laughs> the next person who's you? Yeah, well there is somebody covering for me while I'm uh, in Australia, so uh, he's probably doing quite a good job on that. Um, but I think that, um, I think what's important is that the, the government support the role, you know, that the, the kind of, and the resources are there to uh, you know, make that role effective. Um, another example, um, which we actually looked at very closely when we were developing a policy, was the Dutch system. 
and they've had a government architect for over 200 years as well. Um, and they have a system where a person comes in from um, private practice, a bit like uh, what John had done, but then it's a time-limited post, so they work for a period of four or five years, yeah. and then somebody else takes the, the role on. But they have a, 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 a group of civil servants who are working with them, so there's continuity in terms of how the, that role is supported. Um, so they're kind of semi-independent from government. So, um, and one of the I worked there for um, on an exchange program um, just to see how they operated, and uh, one of the ideas I got from that was the whole idea of creating a kind of almost like a studio culture within the government architects office, so that at least if, even though you're part of government, you can still have a kind of more creative and flexible approach and bring in people who want to work in that environment who are not necessarily going to work or operate as civil servants where you know, risk-taking isn't seen as the, the normal way of operating, whereas we've tried to take, you know, more risks and projects and work in partnership and, you know, it's not us building it, but we've gone out and we've worked with other, uh, you know, developers to build housing and projects using our policies to demonstrate, you know, it can be done. So, um, so I think the main thing is about having the, you know, the overarching kind of framework and support there so that you can attract good people to come in and do the job. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, the. Um, I think it, when John was in the role, I think the idea was that it was a, a two-year tenure, so we had a, a, a government architect that turned over every couple of years. Um, Ted Bailey changed that to a four-year tenure, mm -hmm. really with the idea that two is really fast and two disappears extremely quickly when you're in the process of trying to convince government that what you're doing is worthwhile. Um, and so I think the idea of a four-year tenure kind of coincided with, obviously, a government um, election, you know, period. election yeah. period as well. So that's what the Victorian government architect is at the moment, is a four-year position. It's always been proposed that it's a part-time position because I think the idea is to try to make sure that the calibre of the person <coughs> who will take on that role um, is, is really high. And I guess the idea of it obviously turning over is about energy, it's about focus, it's about a change of, um, of um, space. And I, I think, I meanwhile, four years, I guess, is quite a long time to step out of your practice, even part-time. Um, it's not, it does go past very quite, very fast, I think. So, so I think the idea of, it, we, we actually run something a little like that, where there's, there's a group of, um, you know, people people who are actually employed by the public service and who very much focus on that with, but they are all architects. Um, but the the role of both associate government architect and government architect is is more um, part time, more kind of temporary. I think it's probably just another example of how the boundary between public sector and private sector is more kind of diffused than has been in the past. And I think. Yeah, I mean. As Jill said, when, when, we, when we started it, the idea was very strongly that it should be a two-year turnover because it was felt, and part-time, because it was felt that was the only way that you were going to get sort of leading professionals to come in and interact with government. And the op that, there, there was not, that was the objective there, was it um, sit, sit up as an undersecretary in the Department of Premier Cabinet and have direct contact with all the, the secretaries and various people and deputy secretaries and 
have contact with the profession and have contact with the the developers and all the people that make architecture in the city mm. and and try and influence that but at the same time I think it was recognized that that couldn't happen all the time therefore it was considered that an alternate you know as an alternate an academic or something like yeah. that which is what happened with Jeffrey um, but I'm not I mean I found that two years or what ended up being two and a half years was quite a long time actually to <laughs> <laughs> you might not to have be there you might not have said yes if it was four years then. and I I would you know I, I worry about who you might get that was willing to take on a four-year role if, if if they're out if they're out of the mm. if they're out of the profession mm. if they're not out of the profession if it, if the decisions made to go a different way then, then, then that that works and I guess that's the only difficulty I'd have with a four-year yeah. is is if you want to get that changeover of opinion diversity of, yeah, yeah. of diversity of opinion um, you know I did it if you get someone like Kerry come and do it it would be quite a quite a different set of views on on architecture and architecture in Melbourne how it all works. But and you'd but, have to say but but we can, but, but it would contribute additionally to the whole process, <coughs> process yeah. and, and things like that and I, I, and and I suppose that's if 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 you see the architect in that the government architect in that role which is at a just the high level mm. um, trying to influence change you know being more about not accepting DNC or not accepting PPPs but saying they've got to be done differently mm. you've got to change the way you do them rather rather than perhaps trying to have them done as good which I, I endorse as a, as a process to have them done as well as they can be but to also ch change the way government actually yeah. does it and there, there, you'd have to say there are very few people like Jeffrey in Australia that you know as you say come from an academic background but are, are able to kind of get in the trenches somehow and I think the, a lot of people from that background would not yeah. perhaps get the same respect from the people you have to Kind of get support from. Well, I mean, I think any you know, any any one that comes in to do it's going to be liked by some and not by others or whatever. Mm. It's going to, mm. it, it's just part of the diversity of it all, mm. which is why in a way I prefer the two year than longer. <laughs> just keep keep turning them over, get lots of lots of impact. Well, again, we're, we'll all be waiting to see what happens <laughs> in the months ahead. Yeah. Um, we probably have time for one more question from the audience. Do we have one? Yes, the lady back there. Props. Yeah. I was wondering if the panel would like to comment on the role of the um, the office to be able to influence um, themes like improving affordability of of construction through material choice, that, and also in influencing um, uh, climate change mitigation and adaptation. So I think there's a big role that um, architecture can play in that. A big question for the last question, but we'll, <laughs> <laughs> we'll endeavour to get some answers. Thoughts? Um, we, we haven't done so much on um, material selections and that construction, but we have actually worked on um, affordability, you know, housing affordability and affordable housing policy um, in New South Wales. And we're also doing quite a lot of work in, with the Department of Environment and Climate Change on terms of heat island impacts, sea level rise, um, storm surge. A lot of what we do is post-disaster and so uh, getting in on the front end and actually mitigating and adapting and um, looking at sort of things on a much more systemic level. So that's through our integrated practice of landscape, architecture, engineering, planning, and urban design. Yeah. 
Um, probably here in Victoria, I think we've, we've been around the table at a lot of affordability discussions, but haven't actually done any real work on it. But um, what we're hearing from the incoming government, the, the new government, is that it is a huge issue on their agenda. So we're, we're kind of taking that on board and having a look at it and trying to work out how we can have some kind of, um, certainly be around the tables, have, have some kind of discussion about it. Okay. I have my own, my own last question, which is that I suppose in the, in the period of being a government architect, um, uh, there's a sea of stuff that just keeps churning through the door every day, and it's very diffused. Um, I wonder, in, that, in all that work, and sometimes it has no ends or boundaries, it just keeps coming, um, is there a specific one project that, that you have worked on that somehow crystallizes the importance of your role, your office, in, in showing leadership? Is there one project you could point to as being, that was where it really kind of came together better than elsewhere? Start with you, Ian. Um, I, I think the, um, the housing expo that maybe picks up the last question as well was a kind of uh, you know, a demonstration of how could use innovation, new mod, uh, methods of construction, sustainable supply chain and so on, uh, and that was built uh, out as 50 new houses, uh, which eventually were sold, but it was a big public uh, exhibition, 30,000 people came to visit, um, and that's, I'm feeding some of that thinking into my work here in, uh, in Melbourne. Um, but the other thing um, I think that from a personal point of view is um, over the last, um, I suppose, uh, six years um, has been acting as almost like the producer for Scotland's representation at the Biennale, which is the biggest you know, international mm -hmm. exhibition. And um, so from my own point of view, seeing Scotland taking part in uh, the Biennale, whereas before you know, 2004, we, we, we just wouldn't be there. Um, so that's been a, a big personal, and also the way we've done it is to think about the legacy of that. So when we did it in 2010, uh, we focused on this project in Peter's uh, Seminary, which is Scotland's best, but um, it's abandoned modernist building. And by using that as a kind of platform at the Biennale, we've managed to pull together the momentum and the funding to, to start looking at how that project can be you great. Know, refurbished. So Sounds great. Helen, do you have a project that stands out? Um, look, no, look, I think there are many projects, but I think um, probably our most current portfolio of work is really focusing on the 21st century school. And um, from being an office where we were developing standards, which are kind of becoming very pro forma and very ordinary, there's been a complete departure and a swing with, to working with our client on developing schools which are very, very different to anything that we had been doing, say, 20 years ago. And so that's very exciting because it's really research by design okay. and um, innovating. And so, like, you know, we've got a very exciting project in Ultimo Piermont, which is like a very high-density school with two childcare centres and completely connected to the community, um, you know, be an eight-storey building so and a very compact site. So it's very different ways of working with the Department of Education on ways you can deliver um, educational outcomes, which are so, which are yeah, completely innovative. So, I think every time you do a project, it's well, how can you innovate? How can you actually take your client um, through a design process to deliver a design outcome, which is going to add something, mm -hmm. um, another dimension, 
beyond what they've expected. So this current program is something which I'm very excited about. And which forms a kind of prototypic thing that can then yeah. influence other yeah. things after that. Yeah. 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 Uh, Jill, if, if I was the, the new Premier and I was asking you What's the great thing that uh, OVGA has done the last few years? What would you say? Um, look, I've, I've probably got two things I'd comment on. I think our introduction of our design review panel has been a significant broadening of our influence and also probably the first time, the, in a way, the, act, the review activities, if you like, of the government architect has been perhaps um, expanded onto the slightly more public stage. So I think it's actually mm -hmm. been a, a very um, a very good step in in opening the office up a bit to to public awareness, knowledge, those sorts of things. And because we've got a panel of thirty of of the profession involved, mm -hmm. it's actually had quite a, a significant difference in terms of even awareness within the profession of of what the government architects' office can do. The other project I, I think, which is probably from a personal point of view, which and it's kind of current, so it's worth putting on the table, is the, um, the sort of bipartisan support that Melbourne Olympic Park has mm -hmm. and that the, the sporting precinct, which actually I, I think is probably the only project I could pin down that crosses government in terms of support, funding, et cetera, et cetera, and actually has really successfully, we're, we're, our voice is at the table all the time on every project that's rolled out in that precinct. And I think the success of it is, is really to be celebrated. Yeah. And particularly, I guess I say over the top of that, bipartisan mm -hmm. um, support for it. John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the danger of asking the mother, which, which, which is your favorite children? <laughs> <laughs> um, my the thing I was most happy with, but in fact never happened, <laughs> um, was in fact we did a we did a, a whole of government review of how the government procures its design. We put packaged it all up. We negotiated with Premier and with um, Treasury and Finance, and we actually had approved by cabinet um, two two key things. One, that procurement of architects could be done by quality-based assessment, not fees. And they agreed to that, but I don't think it's ever been. Nothing's ever happened. And the second one was that um, that they would allow a pilot project, a pilot PPP, to be done, which um, where the government high, selects quality based selected the architect, appointed them. They, they worked. They developed the brief. They worked with it. They did the design, and they put the design out to the to the. PPP consortiums, so they didn't have to do the design. So the government did the design, not the people. So you don't, you don't get this separation between the users and the designers that the PPP process, in risk shedding, mm. creates mm. creates the problem. Mm. And they agreed to that, but I don't, again, they, it was up to the government to decide which project could happen, and I don't think that's ever happened. That's never been <laughs> able to happen either. So it was a success and a disappointment, I suppose. Something to put on the task list for this year. Part, 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 of, part of it was that there was a hi hiatus between when I left and when Jeffrey really arrived and got going, and I think it yeah. kind of they dug a hole and buried it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hope we don't have another hiatus. Um, on that note, I think we'll uh, call an end to this uh, wonderful event. I'd like to once again thank uh, the Melbourne School of Design, and particularly Don Bates, for putting this together. A um, bit of a round of applause. Uh, um, I'd like you all uh, for turning up on a uh, 
Melbourne summer's evening that's probably yeah. more like a I'm Scottish not, winter. Not, <laughs> Scottish summer. <laughs> yes, that's so, saying something. Uh, and to the four panellists for coming here tonight. Thank you all. Cheers.